Hello and welcome to another episode of the Christian Reeve podcast. Today's guest is a business owner, entrepreneur, CEO of Klondoms. I think I've said that correctly. Her name is Una Hartzelbed. She's from yes. the United States. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you so much. I am fantastic. And you have passed the first test, which is pronouncing my last name. Uh, spot on. Excellent. 10 points, 10 out of 10. 10 points to Gryffindor. Fantastic. No, I mean, yeah, no, I always try and make an effort with people's names because it's their name. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, you don't, it's, it's funny, like when you, when you start having a conversation with someone, because uh, I get this a lot. I mean, it's not, my name is not difficult to say, but the thing that always bothers me that people do with my name is on forms or eat you know, actually here's a really good example of what i mean so my name is just christian reeve that's it mm -hmm. you go anywhere online that's how my name is that's my name okay but people take it upon themselves to add like an s at the end of reeves or you know like i can forgive the spellings of christian because it's spelt like a million different ways so that's fine but um plus it's for, i don't even understand the spelling of my name it's got a silent h why i english language but um <laughs> yeah I, I that that somehow bothers me because and i've most of the time i just let it go but every once in a while if i've been on someone's show i'll just be like like i had recently i was on someone's show and i was like they introduced me as christian reeves and i was like it's not my name it's not, <laughs> it's not yeah that's not my name <laughs> exactly yeah that lumen <laughs> song goes through my head every single time <laughs> Well, yes, totally. And as someone named Una, who, um, so I'm originally from Bosnia. I was born in Sarajevo and my family came to uh, the States as refugees. And so my name, Una, is really not super uncommon. Um, and you can hear it across many European countries, but in the US, because that ooh sound is mm -hmm. not as familiar, it's always Una or Uma, because the U and the N, and it's just, yeah, it's, wait, wait, it can be messy, but wait, names are they, totally important, right? Wait, where'd they find the M? It's an it's a N, what? You know, I was, <laughs> I, was, I was cursed to be born after Uma Thurman, so it's oh, you know, yeah, kind of yeah, top yeah. of mind, and people try to make those connections in their heads, and sometimes it doesn't quite work out. So, um. Okay, so you said like you were you were born originally in Bosnia and your family moved over. So what age were you when, when you moved over? Um, well, I mean, since I'm 15 now, and that was 30 years ago, obviously, well before I was born. Uh, I was actually nine when we moved to the States. So um, wow. okay. yeah, it was, it was interesting because I spoke zero English mm. at that time. Like I could sing the ABCs song. Um, and I could say hi and like, hello. And that was pretty much it. And I got dropped into summer school English as a new language classes and then dropped into third grade. And I sometimes think back on those times and I'm like, how did I get through my day? I understood nothing in those early days, but I was really fortunate to have some great teachers at that time. And of course, it's like an age where it's very easy for children to pick up language and sure. I didn't have any other options. Everything in my life was English oriented. Uh, so people find it really surprising when they find out that I'm not originally from the States because I speak unaccented Midwestern broadcaster English. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, get, I get where you're coming from on that. Like um, I grew up in, <clears throat> well, 
northwest London on a suburb. So basically just not in the capital. Like whenever something you say to someone who doesn't live in London, you say London, they're like, ooh, normally. Um, but when they see like where I'm actually from, they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> to, to briefly explain London, London's like, I suppose it's like any major city where you've got like your core, what you identify as being London. And then there's where everyone else lives. And that's where most people live. And that's where I lived. And it's, yeah, it's fine. It's, it is what it is. I lived in a fairly decent area. Um, but the, as far as the accent is concerned, that's the point I wanted to bring up actually is like, I think that takes a great deal of effort and it's influenced by different things. So I think part of it was the way my mum spoke. Part of it was the school I went to and then you know just being surrounded by different people in, in different areas and stuff so you pick up on these different things but um point being you have to spend like a lot of time trying to master that and particularly if you're doing um anything that involves like marketing or sales or whatever and we'll get on to like what what your business is all about and your business career in a bit but like just want to say like on that note i think when you're trying to advertise yourself in a business capacity or get that across you kind of like i suppose subconsciously have to start doing that and then you realize consciously you're doing it and you're like oh okay yeah this is i need to do this so that my message is clearer i suppose in the most important thing but um right yeah and i suppose like for yourself like growing up the first sort of obstacle is okay i'm in this foreign country i'm a kid and obviously you don't think about things in this well, maybe some kids do, I don't know. But most kids, I suppose, don't think about these things these, this deeply. It's like, well, I'm in this situation. You know, you do your best with what, what the situation you're in, right? Mm-hmm. But the, the key being to try and be understood. You know, like when I, when I was living abroad, it was the same thing. You know, um, how can I be understood? How can I best get to a point where people can understand me? I can get the things that I want and need. And, and then we can worry about, you know exact inflections of way things sound and everything but firstly just to be understood (laughs) yes let's communicate the message appropriately so was there i mean you said you had some good teachers but was there like a good sort of support network overall like how quickly were you able to make that transition so really within the first couple of years of being in school and I went to public school. So this was, and I actually credit a ton of my success to the public school system that I was part of because of the teachers that they were, that were there and the resources we had, especially with the English as a new language program, Mm. which has always been so interesting to me because it's not like you have someone who necessarily speaks your native language, who can kind of help explain and coach you on what the target language that you're learning is about. It's just these people who learned how to teach English as a new language. And we did a lot of reading, like them reading out loud to me and me reading to them, likewise playing games. I remember this was Mm. my introduction to the board game Candyland, um, which is like a quintessential, (laughs) quintessential like children's game. Um, And this was the thing, Shoots and Ladders and Candyland were a huge part of how I learned to speak English. In addition to watching movies, listening to music, we we didn't really have cable and like now cable is barely even a thing, Uh, but we didn't really have access other than to the public channels. And so I watched a ton of public broadcasting growing up, which, you know, Sesame Street, Mm. Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, all of these places that had 
what would be considered really proper English, slow speech, repetition, especially as children rewatch episodes of things. And so this was, you know, one of the main ways that I picked up on the language. Um, and the teachers that I had were really supportive in terms of meeting me where I was, right? Because entering third grade, I really didn't speak the language at all. So my assignments had to be, had to have a little more grace <laughs> to them. Um, I had missed out on the way English is taught in terms of phonics. And so all of my life, I've read basically understanding like maybe about 40% phonics and the rest was just a lot of exposure mm -hmm. and learning through reading, through music, things like that. Uh, but, uh, but when it came to how quickly I caught on, within the first couple of years, they decided they didn't need English as a new language support anymore. And I was testing above my classmates on average when it came to standardized tests, which tells you a little bit about my knowledge, but also tells you that I'm a decent standardized test taker. So it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, but I'm super I, intelligent. <laughs> yeah, look at my <laughs> look at my test scores. Um, yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. But I love to talk. And so this was really a way for me being able to communicate with other people was a huge mm. draw. And so it just kind of came out of that and came out of tons of practice. Um, and I also love to read. And in my school, we didn't have air conditioning at the time, except in the library. So I became library <laughs> helper uh, because I am a smart lady, even when I was a nine and 10 year old. And, um, and so, and this just really gave me tons of exposure. And some of my fondest childhood memories are really of time I spent at the school library, at the public libraries and the access to books and information back in my day when we couldn't look things up on the internet <laughs> and really needed to like find an encyclopedia and learn about the Dewey Decimal uh, System and how to find information in a library. Yeah, I remember those days. Those were not fun. Gee, those encyclopedias were huge. Like, they were kind of fascinating as well. But this, like, I remember just looking for a dictionary forever, trying to find the right word. Although I don't know, thesaurus, I loved the thesaurus. To this day, I still love the thesaurus. Um, yeah, as a writing tool uh, for what, especially for songwriting, whatever you know. But um, yeah, I just wanted to pick up on what you were saying about like learning languages as far as um, the practice element is concerned. Like, I think that's that's really true. I mean, you you at least need a few people in your life around you that you can frequently talk with, mm -hmm. or you need to be living in that place. I remember because I lived um, in Europe for, for a few years and I kind of naively thought, oh, well, I'll still learn the language because I want to, but I probably won't need it. I'll probably be all right with English. And here's the funny thing. So I was learning anyway because I wanted to, because I love languages and culture and history, la, 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 all that stuff. Uh, just a big nerd, basically. Um, and then I'd find myself in these situations where someone wouldn't speak English and I'd be like, oh, right then. And then I'd have to sort of dig into what I knew, which was always broken, but they knew what I was meant. And then I'd get by and then I, I would sit there reflecting on it as like, let's say I'm on a coach journey and I'm, you know, they've understood me and I'm on the coach now and I'm sitting there thinking, wow, if I didn't speak the language, I, I, would, I would have been screwed then. And I'd constantly hear these other foreigners in the country be like, oh, yeah, you know, it's it's easy. You know, um, 
I get by all the time without it. And I'm thinking, well, you must like never leave the city centre then, like ever. <laughs> but I would even have those problems even in the city centre, which I don't know, maybe I was just exposed to it a bit more than, I don't know, luck of the draw, maybe, I don't know. But very strange. But yeah, anyway. Uh -huh. You know, who knows? Maybe it was just someone who decided to mess with you and was like, yep, I don't speak English. What are you going to do? <laughs> they, they, never, they never knew. No, see, here's what would happen, right? So every, uh, I lived in Estonia for three years, right? And um, in Estonian, when, well, the, the main, the first, one of the first phrases I learned was, which means, can you speak Esto uh, English, right? Mm -hmm. And because my pronunciation was good, I think they just assumed I was Estonian. So imagine someone like if you assume that someone's of your, you know, from the same country as you, and they say, "Can you speak this foreign language?" You're obviously going to be like, "Yeah, but why?" Like you know, <laughs> and then I'd be like, "Oh, great!" And then I'd start speaking in English, and then that would freak them out, and they'd be like, "Oh, oh, okay, you're a foreigner." Oh, what? <laughs> and, but I understood like that, that. There's a bit of a, yeah. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's learning languages is, um, it's, I don't know. I mean, it's, how, how do you find, okay. So you learn, is it Bosnian would be the language then? Yes. Right. So that's like your mother tongue, if you like. And then you come to the States, you learn English. Was there like a point where, you know, you felt, did you ever feel like you were kind of speaking something which wasn't like you per se? Or did you ever feel like, did you, was there ever a point when you sort of lost, when you weren't speaking Bosnian anymore and it was just English or like, talk to us a little bit about like how it felt speaking this language. And then, you know, do I mean, do you still speak Bosnian with family and et cetera? Like talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. So, um, so my parents, even once my sister and I were totally fluent in English, always insisted on speaking Bosnian at home so that we would mm. keep that up as a language. So to them, we speak it uh, not as well <laughs> because as children, like we really didn't see the value. Youth is wasted on the young for sure. Yeah. And this ability to keep up the language, it made us different, right? And when you're, you know, nine, 10, 11 years old into your teens, like being different is not okay. And so that really, like, we really pushed back on that. But what I've found interesting over the years is that, you know, I can, I can understand it super well because it's a phonetic language. I can read pretty much anything in it. Uh, and this was also part of what was hard about English because Bosnian has a phonetic alphabet. Um, and so each and every letter just makes that single sound. And even letters that look like combinations like N and J say Ny, but they only ever say yeah, and there's no exception and there's no other rules or anything around that. Um, so that it's really intuitive. Like as long as you know the sounds each of the letters makes, you can read anything. Um, with English, that was very, very different for us. And we would still speak it and we would occasionally travel back to Bosnia to visit family. And so I would find myself watching subtitled TV shows, which I think is far more common in Europe than mm -hmm. in the United States. Although thanks to like Netflix and the World Wide Web, now you do get more exposure to international um, art uh, rather than just US-based things. And so I would start off, right, reading captions because I'm watching a telenovela, 
that is not dubbed and I need to be reading the subtitles in Bosnian. And I would start and I'd be like missing tons of words in there because I couldn't read as fast. But by the end of our vacation, I was just keeping on top of it because it was pretty much daily practice, right? On reading and speeding up my ability to read. And so every like summer when we would go, that would be my course is like, as I was watching TV, I'd be reading and I'd be missing things. And then by the end of it, I'd be catching up. Um, and these days, what's really interesting is like, it's a total code switch. And I've read about this some as well, uh, and totally relate to this experience where I, there are parts of my personality that are a hundred percent different. If mm. I'm speaking to someone in Bosnian versus if I'm speaking to someone in English and the, like the only time, and it's really, really also strange, like to my sister and I, we use English unless there's something sensitive that we don't want someone else, like yeah, we're out in yeah, public yeah, yeah. and we need to say something, right? That's the only time that we use Bosnian with each other. And it's still, it's like the gears in my brain are grinding and telling me like, this isn't who you are with this person, <laughs> right? It's like, it's hard to switch to the Bosnian brain when I'm with this person that I typically speak English with. And especially since we have a close relationship and spend quite a bit of time together. So yeah, so that has been my experience and kind of like observing that as it's happening to me, it feels so strange. I know what you mean. Like there are people I knew when I lived in Estonia that I only ever spoke Estonian with. I never spoke English with. And some of them knew English, by the way. They just insisted on speaking Estonian with me, which is fine. Like I understood, but I was, I was like, you know, I'm so bad at this. <laughs> but you're you're right. You're into something. Like there is something about that, and um, yeah, I, I often find as, as well. Like sometimes it's just quicker to say things in, in another language than it is. Like I find. I remember one time I was on a farm. Um, okay, so there's an island off the coast of Estonia called Saaremaa. So there's, there's two islands and there's one of the islands off and um, a lot of people go there for the summer holidays, a lot of people own farms there and I happen to be on the farm visiting different people, working on a farm at one point, all sorts of fun ensued. Anyway, it was one particular summer and there was a guy there, a group of friends and there was a guy there who was, I believe, a language teacher of some description, young guy, but he knew like nine languages. It was incredible. And he was talking about how languages work, which, you know, I was fascinated by this. And he basically explained, <laughs> and it's so true, it's the best description I've ever heard of English. Because the one thing I learned about Estonian was it was very straightforward. Like a lot of European languages tend to be quite straightforward. That's where sometimes people think that things come across as blunt. Not necessarily. It's just people want to get straight to the point, right? Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, um, different languages are different, like English and, and Russian, very expressive, you know, very expressive, lots of ways of saying the same thing and etc. But when he was talking about English, he basically explained like, oh, you know, so Estonian maybe is like this and, you know, Polish is like this, but English is like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you get there and then you finally get there. But he was right. He's onto it because sometimes like, and I try to be as straightforward as it can be for the most part. Depends on the context. You know, if we're having a conversation like we are now, I think it's better to be a bit expressive and tell a story. I mean, that's kind of the whole point, right? Sure. But sometimes, you know, when someone just says to you, like, like, tell me the truth, give it to me straight. 
that's the time to just get to the point <laughs> straight away. And with English, I sometimes find that's a challenge. Sometimes you need to explain a lot of different things to kind of paint a picture of what you really mean. Because uh, sometimes it can get lost when you're trying to explain something or whatever. And every language is different in, in that respect. Like they all function slightly different ways. And yeah, it's just, it's just fascinating. And, and then there'll be things, I'm sure you can appreciate this as well, which only make sense in that culture. Absolutely. Yeah, I think to a great extent, culture informs so much of language, yeah. but language can also very much impact culture. So it's just this kind of ongoing, not even so much of a circle as a figure eight, because there's a lot of crossover and there's no really clear delineation between the two, but it can get quite messy in that in that as well. And I think another thing is like about being really intentional about yeah. the way you use words and which words you choose when you do have more than one option and how you can really structure. Um, I think in English, this of course is the case as well, but like you can really structure the way you want someone to perceive what you're saying based on the words that you're using, right? You can talk about the same subject in so many different ways and just like a slight tweak of your word choice. Um, and that also really makes me think about like when we, the way we use language, right? Like our teenagers and our baby boomers all speak English, but they speak different dialects of English and how like teenagers, when they're speaking, they create their own language, right? Yep. And it's wrong. Even as, as an adult, like, even if I understand the terminology that, <laughs> that a teenager is using, it is not right for me to use it. It is not mine to use. Yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah. And I didn't totally internalize this until I was watching a TV show on Netflix recently where this was happening. And I was like, I know that this is a little bit like farcical anyway, because that's, you know, that's the art of this show. But like, oh, I get it. I get it. We're not supposed to use that language. That is theirs. This is how they're carving their place in the world and taking some ownership and control at a time where many things feel very out of control for a lot of teenagers and where they are trying to be more independent. So they have their own coded language in the same ways industries do, right? You go to an industry conference and no one is speaking English, right? Because they're all speaking in acronyms and initialisms and they know what they're talking about. But if you're not familiar with their language, you have no clue what's going on. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I come from the business world, so I can, I can totally relate to that. And but the, see, the difference is with teenagers and those acronyms and whatever, sometimes it's to make things quicker. Sometimes it's just, you know, we all have that, as you said, generationally difference. But those business conferences, those business people, I'm sorry, a lot of the time they're doing that to sound more... Yeah, I'll say it like it is more intelligent than they actually are mm -hmm. or saying something when they're not. Not everyone, but in many cases, like I'll give you an example. There's this guy, I can't remember his, his name, something Sinek or something. He's like a major CEO. Oh, Simon Sinek. Simon yeah. Sinek. You know the guy I'm talking about. And I've drank the Kool-Aid occasionally. <laughs> I, do you know what? When I first saw this guy, I, th I thought he was a Bond villain. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, like, okay, look, he's a successful businessman. I appreciate, you know, he, he does well. He does all these motivational talks, right? But then a few times I just sat down and listened to him. Really just sat down and listened to him. 
read everything from his body language, the things he said, the way he spoke, how he structures his conversations. And a few, I listened to a few other people talk about him as well. And I realized he's one of those people that speaks but says nothing. He'll have a point and he gets to the point, right? But what he does is he takes you on this like long, long, long ass story that will get you there. And look, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. If it's meaningful and real, if you tell a story and it's real and people can see the, the sincerity in what you're saying, they will listen and they'll appreciate it. Maybe not everyone will love it, but most people... Because we're not idiots. We can see sincerity. We can feel it. We, we know when, when someone's trying to pull the wool over our eyes, right? And with people like that, I feel they try so desperately to kind of paint this idea of, hey, it's okay. Come here. I'll teach you, you know, how you need to be. And this is how it is. And when I was in this situation and this was happening, da, 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 this is what we did. And I had, like, he, he does a particular thing where he goes, it's always the same thing. I challenge you to find any speech where he doesn't do this. He'll have, he'll sit, he'll sit down and the guy will ask him a question. he will be like, great question. And then he'll go. So I was sitting here with 10 or so high profile business leaders. It's always like 10 high profile people or like the leader of this country or some, they'll never give names ever. Mm -hmm. So there's no way of being able to check if any of this actually happened, which I think is by design. <laughs> But that's how I do it. And the thing is that like, people get sucked in. And <laughs> I think it's, you always got to be wary, like who you listen to with regards to these, like these business conferences, business, because some people are worth listening to. Some people, you know, and I think that again, like I said, I'm trying to repeat myself too much, but it does come down to sincerity. Mm -hmm. You know, when I, I know when I tell a story, I know one, one of the first things that goes through my head is, yeah, there, there might be some people that might not believe me but I feel confident in what I'm saying. I know that this happened. And if they question me, I can give them specific details. And they're okay. like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, because let's be real, right? It's very easy to lie, but once someone questions you and starts poking holes in your argument, very difficult to quickly lie and come up with a constructed lie. And then remember about the lies you've told. This is why you should just never lie. Yeah. <laughs> you <know? clears throat> yeah. You know what? I think you just put your finger on what it is that has always bothered me about Simon's work. And like, I read the book, right? Start with why. And I was like, but this, this isn't actually how things go. Mm -hmm. You might, mm -hmm. you might at some point find a why that you can leverage, yep. but it may not necessarily be the thing that you started with. And some things you just do. And there is no why other than that you want the end result of like making money, making your life easier, some other thing I'm not thinking of right now. Right. And it's just, I just had so much trouble really connecting with his message. Well, Obviously he's found a, he's found an audience out there, but like the person I connect with is Brene Brown. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to talk about sincerity, I feel like she's the antithesis of, you know, like brave leadership and uh, vulnerability and all of these things are the antithesis of this like tiny book and superficial research, in my opinion. 
No, I, I agree with you, and I don't. I don't want to spend the whole podcast going on about this guy, but <laughs> I do. I do. I do want to throw another thing in there, like this story that came to me as as we were speaking. There's one particular story he told, right, where <laughs> it was like a situation where he's apparently in some sort of meeting and he, you know, he, he, see, he does this thing where he, he tries to kind of get the, the, the other person on board to like him. Right. It's like, Haha, you know, I was in a business meeting, <laughs> you know, like it, <laughs> we all hate business meetings, right? <laughs> Sit there. We don't know what's going on, <laughs> you know? And like, <laughs> so uh, this sounds really mean, but if you go watch his stuff, you'll see what I mean. It's, I'm not. I'm not making this up. Loads of people have, have have come across the problem with this, right? You should never try and like get people to like you. You should just be yourself. Mm-hmm. Be be real. Be sincere, and because people will love you or hate you either way. But people appreciate sincerity, as you said. There are people that do that, and and that will come through, and and more people will be willing to listen to your message and what you have to say because you're being sincere, and that's inspiring. When you're like this guy and you're making up stories like the one I'm going to tell, it's it's like why? Like I don't I, maybe it did happen, but it just the way he tells it just sounds wrong. Like he's he's in this mm-hmm. meeting apparently, and he doesn't understand what's going on, right? Fair enough. Okay, so he you know asks a question. He says, "Hey, could you explain this? I didn't get this." Blah blah blah. Right, and apparently then by some stroke of miracle, suddenly everyone in the room is putting their hand up and going, oh yeah, I didn't understand it either. Oh, <laughs> I didn't understand. It just sounds like something from a movie. It's not real, cause that's not, look, that's not how real life works. Real life works, p- p- people are people, you know? Mm-hmm. Now you talk about professionalism. What does that really mean? Professionalism is like trying not to get personal feelings involved with business and to think about the bigger message and, 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 and try to do good business. Like that's kind of at the core of it. Right. Sure. But the reality is there is always emotion involved in business in everything that we do. The key is to kind of keep control of it. Cause that's in a part, how you keep leverage. That's, you know, for example, I've worked in, um, in certain companies where, you know, someone loses their temper and they shout at someone, berate them, and they're a manager or something. Most people looking at that will see it for what it is, which is that manager has now lost their power. Mm-hmm. They don't have because they've, you know, they've. That's not a professional way to deal with your problems. A professional way to deal with your problems is to sit and talk with people, and communicate that message. And if they don't get it straight away, try again. If they don't, you know you you call it quits you you do whatever you know that's mm-hmm. business but it's like and i understand like don't get me wrong in business like certain things happen that are unfair that are unjust were unjust and stuff and you do have to call that out and address that but like for example in in that example that that, that Sinek guy gave like i can i've been in a situation like that before if you question the speaker the first thing they'll probably say is why, why are you interrupting me? Like save the questions to the end. That'd be number one. Or number two, it'd be like, uh, well, I don't have time. Like, cause he, what he said, it was it basically, it was being explained in really complex terminology and he needed it to be dumbed down a little bit, which is, that's not unreasonable. Right. Mm-hmm. But the reality is if, if it's something like really complex, 
ask to get the meeting notes afterwards and sit through it and go through it you know like stuff like that holds up the meeting for maybe some other people that, that do understand and get frustrated and you know what i mean like i'm not saying you shouldn't put your your hand up and ask questions and stuff but i just i hear something like that and i see the way he speaks and I've just seen it so many times over the years when, when, especially when you get like a, a comp, like a manager who's introducing like a new project that everyone's going to work on, or like they're talking about a particular like financial quarter and how we've, how we've been. And, and they'll say, you know, this is how it's been and this is what we're heading towards. And you're sitting there thinking, well, I've been working on this project for the last six months and my experience was not that my experience was this was hell and that was what everyone else's experience was but what you're painting is this idyllic picture that everything was great and rosy and it's like what mm-hmm. what so i don't know i mean maybe it's just that one particular guy there's plenty of business speakers that are the real deal but i don't know have you That's done true. Have you That's done much so um, public speaking as in like talking about, you know, your successes in business and what you've learned for business, et cetera? Yeah, I've done public speaking both in terms of business related things, but in also my personal story, uh, especially because where I am locally, um, I've helped to work with the organization that was actually the sponsoring nonprofit who helped my family get set up here. And they had a large, um, a milestone anniversary a few years back that I, um, I actually did some speaking around that, around our experience as refugees and my personal experience as, as a child coming to the U.S. And then also I've given presentations like that to other companies as part of their diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, trainings. And I feel like to do that is also a point of privilege because Mm. I'm white, young, and female. And these are things that feel more approachable to others. And so they can look at me and be like, oh, the success story, right? While also ignoring systemic racism and other issues that don't allow other people to succeed in the same ways. I had the benefit of being able to blend in visually with a group in power in the place that I came to, right? And many other people, when they make these decisions, these awful gut-wrenching decisions to leave their home for their own safety, Mm. to leave the place that they call home, maybe choosing a lesser evil and not actually something better for themselves. Um, And so I feel like that's such a huge part of when I talk as well as to acknowledge that privilege and to say like, hey, you're looking at me and you're feeling really great about this story. But also let's not forget that all people deserve to have dignity, food and shelter, health care, you know, access to clean water and medicine. And regardless of what they look like, where they come from or what you believe their value is, because inherently as human beings on this planet, we have value. Um, And whether we agree or disagree on how things should be done, right? These are some basics. And please remember that there are people who don't look like me who are doing, you know, who have these struggles, who have increased struggles because of that. And I know my parents were, you know, taken advantage of and discriminated against because they didn't have as good of English, right? And when Mm -hmm. you hear someone speaking 
uh, broken or accented English, you make assumptions about who that person is, right? And you don't necessarily know. You don't know intelligence level from someone's ability to speak a language. They're not necessarily correlated in the way that you think, right? Because there's also an aspect of opportunity there, right? Did they have the opportunity? Um, do they have access to you know, to schooling in adequate ways? Do they have the time as an adult coming as a refugee or an immigrant to do this? Or are they surviving and helping their families to survive in that in that respect? Um, so I'm, I like I mentioned, I love talking and I love language and I never outgrew the phase of childhood where puns are just hilarious and the greatest humor. And this is why quondoms exists today. Because uh, I <laughs> had a cat that wanted to like he had overactive earwax glands and truly this was the most unfortunate cat i have ever had enter my life because when we got him from a shelter we were just going to foster him his name was snowball snowball was not a pure white cat snowball had some darker spots on him one of them was unfortunately placed right on his butt and he was just like this most unfortunate cat who was also overweight and couldn't clean himself. And so mm. he dragged his butt on the carpet like a dog. Oh, all right. uh, yeah. And he had these overactive earwax glands and would scratch at his ears. And it was like a scene. If you've seen or heard of the show Dexter, it was yeah. like blood splatter on the walls. And I was like, this is not okay. <laughs> oh, wow. So I got these little claw caps to put on there. And as I'm like holding him down and putting these claw caps on, I'm like, Hey, it looks like a little claw condom. It's a clondom. And because I am truly a nine-year-old at heart and will forever be, I was like, this is fantastic. I want to like make these and have a brand because these, you know, there are brands that are out there and popular in the US. And I was like, but what's missing here, right? And what was missing for me is that all of these brands are like, this is such a great solution and here's how you do it. And it's so easy. And like, but you know, be, be aware. Some cats might not like it, or you might need a second person occasionally to help hold them down. Lies, all lies. This is honestly like <laughs> for the love of animals. This is a product that's used by people who, you know, feel like declawing is an inhumane thing to do to a cat, but they really need a solution because they have a baby or they mm. have other pets. I have a friend who the cat took the dog's eye because they had claws and they were fighting and the dog lost an eye because of it. Jeez. And so <laughs> it's a great solution, but like you probably ought to have the beverage of your choice nearby and you might definitely need like a kitty straight jacket so that they'll hold still. And ultimately a lot of people actually just decide to have their vet or their groomer apply it because they last like six to eight weeks. They come with like this heavy duty adhesive and, uh, and it's just a lot easier if someone who does this a lot does it for you. And I felt like the sincerity and the acknowledgement of the reality of this product was lacking. And I was like, we are going to be like the brand that gives it to you straight. <laughs> and so that's really reflected in our instructions and like, Hey, yeah, not all cats will do well with this. You may not do well with this. And that's not a moral failing. Um, and of course, like lots of dad jokes and jokes about sex and, you know, it's, uh, it's something that like, I felt was missing the sincerity, but also I am a huge believer. And like my background, my education is in nonprofits. 
And I think that there's like a huge aspect of corporate responsibility that comes down to really um, giving back to communities and keeping things sustainable. And so like my goal was to remove this heavy duty packaging that comes with a lot of these products that you see like commercially available. So our product comes in a dime bag because all good things come in dime bags and it really reduces the footprint and we give 10% of the proceeds of, of our net profits to animal charities. Um, so I'm trying to like live the life that I would want my kid to live down the line and to have a balance between sincerity, humor, joy, and having some sustainability in the world where I feel like the difference I've made is positive and is going to make a good impact. Um, and we've seen, you know, what's been happening in Ukraine lately. It was almost kind of unbelievable. A lot of people were thinking like, oh, this will never happen. And then here we are. And one of the stories that we're seeing coming out is there are so many people who are taking their pets with them. Mm -hmm. And this really resonated with me because when we were leaving Bosnia to come to the US, we had to leave our animals behind. And um, I had spent some time living away because my parents were in Sarajevo and they sent my sister and I to live with our grandparents on like a family friend's farm away from the fighting. And so we were separated from our parents for a few years. We had a dog and a cat um, while we were on this farm. And we just, we left them behind and that was devastating to us, but there was no practical way for this to be, um, to be something that we're like, we took them back with us and thinking about that and seeing people who are actually like, now we're to a point where so many people they're taking their pets with them. Not only that, but all these neighboring countries, their animal charities are coming together to support refugees and refugee pets. And I was like, this is the thing that like is healing my heart in terms of what I had to experience. And so instead of donating to US-based charities for the rest of the year, our proceeds will benefit charities that are supporting Ukrainian pet refugees um, to try again to make the world a slightly better place. And, um, and I've just, you know, I feel like I can't solve problems entirely by myself, but the contributions I make to the world should be overwhelmingly positive for what I can do. Um, and it's like that serenity prayer, right? <laughs> like, give me the, the grace to like make the changes that I can, but also to accept the things that I cannot change. Yeah, no, first of all, yeah, well done. Well done for that. I mean, I think there's always something that can be done in some shape or form. Um, and a lot of it comes down to, yeah, reframing the way that you're already doing something. I mean, as you said there, you know, you've got, you already got this company that's involved with pets, you know, and it's kind of like a no brainer to help charities in Ukraine at, at this time and, and right. et cetera, you know, it's, it's like a natural kind of, um, the words escape me, you know what I mean? Progression, you synergy, know. synergy. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, Oh, come on, man. <laughs> we avoid those words. No. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good thing and it's, um, I, th I think I think on that note, actually, uh, with regards to what we've seen in Ukraine with the importance of people's pets, I think in general over the years, maybe people's perception of pets has changed. Maybe, maybe mm -hmm. because pets, I think animals have always been important to humans and the human race, etc. But you know, if you think like say hundred years ago or whatever, like animals 
almost served more of like a functional purpose in many respects. So they were still part of the family, but like, you know, for instance, cats were expected to get rid of mice in the house and mm-hmm. dogs were, you know, supposed to herd sheep and, and those things still happen. But, you know, over the years you find that this differs country to country. Like I'll never forget when I was on holiday in Bulgaria, I, I was in I suppose like 2013 and I was, it was the, the first and only time I ever did a beach holiday because I can't stand doing stuff like that. I got suckered on to come to, like, I wanted to go anyway because cool, it's another country. I love Europe. I love going, exploring, traveling. I love all that. But beach holiday, yeah. But uh, so we're at this like four star hotel and, you know, it's on the beachfront. And um, I remember like this stray dog just ran up to me. And I wanted to pet it, but I remember someone saying to me, like, oh, no, no you shouldn't, like, they're stray, they might have fleas and et cetera. And, like, I, I just remember, like, how skinny the dog was and, and like, it was clearly stray. And I just, it kind of blew my mind a bit because we don't really have that in the UK. Like, I'm sure there are strays, like, sometimes that animals that get lost or, or whatever, or, you know, mis abused etc but mm-hmm. generally speaking we do take very good care of animals in this country so it's a rarity to see that but that's very common or at least it was mm-hmm. at the time in bulgaria and that was very striking to me as far as like how that's enabled to happen how that happens but i think this latest situation with with animals in the ukraine has taught us that you know pe- people's perception of animals has changed like they are part of the family they are um like, why would you leave them behind? You know, uh, obviously in your situation, that was different. That You were kids, so you didn't get a say in that. Your parents, you know, they're like, we need to get out of this tough situation. Let's go. You know, you, you think about those things and you're like, this right. is an extreme situation. But it's like, I think maybe, maybe may, I guess my point is that maybe that perception is now changing and, you know, because people change over time and, 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 what people value changes over time i suppose and maybe our perception of animals has changed maybe hopefully for the better i mean so it certainly seems like people are more conscious of things like you know animal welfare these days i mean i see a lot of stuff being done to help animal shelters that in the uk we've got we've got a lot of things where people are pushing to for people to to get animals from rescues as opposed to just buying them you know as a puppy or or whatever Mm -hmm. And I, I also see a lot of literature in the media about, um, you know, kind of the, the negatives of the existence of zoos, for example, mm-hmm. which is not always something that you hear spoken about, but, you know, it's true. I mean, um, you go to a nature reserve, that's a very different experience from going to a zoo. And if you've never been to either or you've only been to one or the other, go make sure you see both so you get a real good idea of the difference because yes yeah I, I never forget i was in dublin zoo many years ago in ireland and um there was like a gorilla enclosure and fortunately they had some access to outside but it was one of those deals where some of it was inside and that would be where the glass was where you whatever and then there's an outdoor section but they didn't have a lot of space and these are gorillas you know um I mean, they shouldn't be in in the zoo anyway, but okay. Um, But I think the thing that stuck out to me was, okay, yes, they have access to indoors and outdoors and they have space, but like they don't have enough space. And they've got all these like 
people staring at them and they're not stupid animals at all like, i don't know it's my personal belief i don't believe animals are stupid i think they're very very aware um and i i could tell I, at the time i was like 20 or, or something and i remember just standing there and this gorilla's by the glass looking at everyone and it just looks me directly in the eyes and i just stare at it and there was thus this kind of like heartbreaking moment I, I could almost like feel like the sadness in the gorilla's eyes. Like it was like, just going on my own feelings here, but it felt mm -hmm. like we both understood that this is just an unacceptable situation. Like, cause I didn't get any joy from that. I wasn't enjoying the experience. I was just looking at this, like, well, these animals shouldn't be here. This is unacceptable. Like what? Like, and I, I don't want to be that guy. Like, you know, I paid to go to the zoo at the end of the day. So it's not like I'm completely mm -hmm. funding this, you know. Um, but at the end of the, like these days, I, I don't, I don't ever want to go back to a zoo. You know, I, I don't want to yeah. fund stuff like that. Cause I just think it's, doesn't have a place in today's society. And, and the reason I highlighted um, sanctuaries and rescue centers is because sometimes like there can be, it can be done for the good. If, if, if what's going to happen, if you're taking like an endangered species or you're taking an animal, you're taking care of them. And then with the view to release them back into the wild, I don't think it's that unreasonable that you let people see the animals. Like, you know, that's okay. Cause at least they're going to be taken care of and released back into the wild. And this is like a temporary solution, you know, mm. versus zoo is just, come on, it's, it's just like extension of the circus, isn't it? It's like, you know, I, I definitely see that. And I know that circuses have certainly had a very difficult time mm. in recent years, which is great because, right. And I think when these things start, it's when we were thinking about like, you know, we're displaying curiosities and of course right. someone's making money off of this, right? This is not, this was not a charitable venture here. And I think to an extent zoos are feeling some of that pressure of needing to focus on providing more space right to animals and being really selective in terms of what animals they do feature and what they do and how they do it and focusing on rehabilitation and conservation um i agree that there need to be lots more changes done there i also see a bit of a positive to zoos if they're done as well as possible now with an idea of growth towards the future because there are kids like me who would never be able to see some of these animals out in the wild and the things i don't see i don't think to care about so by having some of these examples more locally accessible i know our, our local zoo school groups from preschool level all the way up through high school visit the zoo you know and these are opportunities for people to build a broader worldview of the places around the world, the animals, the problems that they face, right? Whether it's habitat destruction or poaching. So I think there's room for it to an extent, but I think there's also lots of improvements that need to be made. And I agree, I had actually an opportunity to visit an animal sanctuary in Australia. Um, and you can definitely see, right, what the difference is in, um, in how those habitats are organized and, and run and all of these, um, the different in, you know, enrichment and opportunities that animals have in those types of habitats. So I tend to like 
pick a very middle of the road, <laughs> despite wearing a totally black and white outfit today, I have a very gray perspective on life. Um, and that's not to say that it's an excuse to say like, yeah, you know, zoos get to just stay the way they are. And this, like, this mm. is great. And they're untouchable. Because I think the minute we make something so sacred that we can't talk about it and can't be skeptical of it and mm. critical of it, it becomes a weapon. It's no longer a tool. It's a weapon now. Yeah, no, you should be able to criticize anything. Anything is up for critis uh, criticizing. And I suppose, like, I, I get where you're coming from. I think for me, because I will, I will admit, yeah, I have seen a lot of initiatives that zoos um, feature and they, and they always make a point of saying, oh, we're giving to this charity, or we're helping this or we're doing this. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they are doing things. But I think that the key issue here is like, <sighs> the fact that they're like, profiting by having the animals there right just hear me out on this see like with with an with a sanctuary it's like they take those animals because they're either endangered or they've come across them in the wild and they're like they need genuine help before they can you know maybe they've been like rejected like a, a mother lion cub has been rejected or something and they bring it back into the wild that way you know and and you see it and you see the whole journey you see them you know look after the animal and then bring them back into the wild with zoos they sometimes do that but mostly the the, the objective is take them from the wild give them a life in a zoo that's it mm -hmm. and the goal is to keep um get them to to you know to breed and continue and 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 stay in the zoo and i don't know like this idea of like life in captivity to me just hits me the wrong way i think because while i get what you're saying about oh we should have access to to be able to see them and stuff and that's beneficial i agree but like i think if if it was just the animal sanctuaries that existed and that was the way that we saw them that would send the right message too because it'd be like okay well we have these animals we're taking care of them the reason that you're seeing them is because we're taking care of them and this is important and you explain why mm -hmm. it's important whereas a zoo it's like oh yeah we're helping them a bit but uh they're gonna live their whole existence in the zoo and it's like yeah what kind of message does that send i mean it's a bit like what like <laughs> i don't know and that that's that's the only element that i get a bit funny with like a zoo can can do all the initiatives they want help people all, the, all they want but like that one fact just sits with me a bit wrong because like if, if zoos were the only thing that existed then maybe you could make a bit of an argument either way it'd still be wrong but at least you could say oh well there are some zoos that are doing something but sanctuaries are like exist and help and then serve a purpose and then and release animals back into the wild and it's almost like a rehabilitation process or uh assisting them getting them back to where they need to be before they're re-released you know mm -hmm. So it's, um, and by the way, I'm not trying to push you into like a, a opinion because I know sometimes people do that. That's not, that's not my deal. I'm just saying where I sit on that. Yeah. It's very much a, it's a weird one when, when mm -hmm. you, when you, when you, when you deconstruct it, when you really start to like put a magnifying glass on it, it starts to become a bit like, well, why are we doing this? Yeah. Well, and you know, I think that's like, again, talking about going back to start with why. Right. right. Zoos didn't start with the why of conservation. Yeah. Zoos started with the why of novelty and making money. And, you know, people find novelty exciting. Right. 
Mm-hmm. And what a great experience. And then they've kind of wandered into across time, right? Because of the social pressures of people coming out and saying, hey, it's not right to treat animals this way. Like this is inhumane, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, to sort of be like, okay, well, let, we're in a we're rebranding. We're also doing these conservation efforts and helping with breeding and rehabilitation. But their original why is still like there's echoes of that. And not all zoos are created equal, right? Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. neither are all sanctuaries. Like there, there are animal sanctuaries. There are cat sanctuaries where I live that are like borderline should be shut down by our mm-hmm. local authorities because they're really not serving that purpose. But people are fond of using language in ways that serves them rather than ways that reflects the truth. Um, so they call themselves sanctuaries because they know that people will get warm fuzzies about that if you don't look deeper. Mm-hmm. But that being said, totally, you can see the difference there. And maybe that is evolution of zoos 2.0 is that we have a push towards more of a sanctuary type of environment. And especially because these days, like we can have experiences we don't need to have in person. Like I don't need to see that tiger through a glass cage. I can have a VR experience at home of seeing tigers and learning about them and seeing them in their natural environment and supporting organizations around the world that are serving animals that maybe aren't, you know, native and maybe shouldn't be in a zoo local to me because what is a polar bear doing in the Midwest? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's a big one. Yeah. Cause it's one thing having like a, like a, a big cat or something like in, you know, patch of grass or whatever, but <laughs> come on, man. Penguins. Yeah. Actually that brings me up to a good point because you mentioned like these big cat, like these big sanctuaries and stuff like that. And it, it just reminds me of that whole Tiger King fiasco, um, which I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this because we, we've only touched a little bit on your love of cats and, and, and why they're important to you. And I'm sure we'll go into that in a little bit, but I just wanted to get your initial thoughts on that. Cause I think for many of us, other than just the pure absurdity of it, just putting that mm-hmm. to one side, many people were looking at it like, well, here's two sets of people that have a lot of money and they've decided to make like these big cat sanctuaries and which eventually basically just became zoos. Um, and I, I believe um, Carol Bas- Baskin, Baskin uh, her, hers is still operating because I know that the Tiger Kings got shut down, but um, hers is still going, I believe. And, and her justification is always, well, you know, we're taking care of them. We're doing this, we're doing that. And the big thing that a lot of people say in response to that is, well, you just shouldn't have them in captivity in the first place. You know, so it's a very kind of like mm-hmm. back and forth situation. But yeah, being that you are a big lover of, of cats and animals in general, what was your takeaway from that whole thing? Yeah, I tried to avoid Tiger King as, oh, <laughs> as just, much as yeah, I could, but yeah. I did. I mean, obviously it was unavoidable because it was in, it was in the air, right? Everyone was talking about this. And I think my stance towards that is the same that it generally is, which is that if you are trying to help, right, that's great, but help can definitely hurt at times. And yeah. if you want to help a certain animal, person, country, whatever it is, you really have to understand what it is that it needs and what's the best way, not for you to help, but what's the best way for that animal, person, country, whatever area to receive help. And we see this in lots of different humanitarian efforts. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a little bit more layered with animals because they can't tell you what they need, but there are lots of people 
who know, who have studied and observed and live among these animals who have sanctuaries and can tell you this is the best way to support the species. And it's not by putting them in a habitat where you are. It's by partnering with this organization, right? If you have the money to do it, then why not give that money in a sustainable way to other organizations that are doing this work in a way that supports the natural local habitats of these animals and addresses their needs in the wild. Because even like if you have animals and you, let's say you, you know, rehabilitate them in a sanctuary and you release them back into the wild, what happens after that, right? Have you solved the problems that are in place that have endangered these animals to begin with? And if you haven't, then you're just creating a feeder program for your right. sanctuary instead of actually creating solutions. Um, and so like, to me, you know, it's the same thing when people, you know, want to help, let's say, uh, communities that need uh, access to clean water. Well, what is the best way to do that, right? What is the sustainable way to do that? And what do those communities say they need to succeed when it comes to the sustainability, right? And for you, it might be, you know, donating money, right, to this particular organization that's teaching them about how to do this. It might be building wells that are closer so they don't have to walk as far. What other problems are being solved and what problems can you create by imposing your view of that solution, right? And the way people interact with things, it's going to be based on their culture, on their experiences, and trying to come in. And I think the U.S. is <laughs> guilty of this as, uh, as anybody else, that like you come in and you impose what you think is the solution, but that actually does more harm than good. And you're just wasting resources at that point instead of engaging locally and finding out like, is this a problem for you? How is this a problem? How, what do you think is the best way to solve this? Um, and with animals, again, like you can't really ask them necessarily, but there are lots of people who are quite knowledgeable and engaging with them and saying, I want to help. And I want to make sure that when I help, I also don't do harm through that. Um, so yeah. And like, there are some local farms in our area that are really great and you can go and you can like donate and take a tour. And I looked at one recently and they, um, they also breed dogs and I'm like, our shelters are full of pets right? Loved pets and abandoned pets, but pets that need homes, why are we breeding dogs? And so mm. for me, that's not a place that I can support because they're contributing to what I perceive as a large problem in our community um, that is straining the resources, right? Not to mention that like, we, you could probably talk for another two hours about <laughs> why purebred dogs are actually problematic and not something we want. Like we stopped pure breeding royals. Maybe we can take that a next step because we already know pure breeding animals causes same types of genetic issues. Yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole <laughs> podcast right there. <laughs> um, let's, let's talk through your love of cats um, because I mean, well, look, I love animals. Many people listening to this love animals. We all love animals for the most. I imagine most people love animals. I, to be honest, most of the time when I meet someone that doesn't love animals, I'm like, what's wrong with you? It's fair enough. Every, Red everyone, flag. Every, everyone's <laughs> different. Everyone's different, you know? Yeah. Um, but why are cats specifically so important to you? What What is it about cats? What's the story there? So, you know, I think this is like, asking anybody about like why they love anything is mm. there's just something about it that 
calls to my soul. Like I love their cute little pointy ears and their cute little faces and the way that they meow and how sassy they can be and their personalities. The fact that they don't usually smell as bad as dogs. Like there's so many things about it, but like, but really, you know, one of my first pets was this cat that we had on this farm. And I just like, I just love this cat. And aesthetically, I find cats very pleasing. The fact that they have this like uh, perceived personality of being like sassy and independent um, compared to dogs that are, you know, just like endlessly loyal to their people or, you know, like even an aggressive cat you have some respect for and you're like, oh, we better stay away from that cat. But like an aggressive dog, that aggression can create, you know, a life-threatening problem for that dog. So cats just have this like real balance in the world of being both perceived as independent, but can also be quite loving and like, and they purr. And it's almost like the way, you know, if a small child really likes you and like engages with you, you're like, yes, I made it because children tell no lies. Right. Uh, when it comes, they're good readers of personality. And like, if someone's going to be a good person to interact with, and I feel like the cats are the same way. Like if your cat likes me, I have arrived in the world. Um, and so okay. I've, <laughs> I've always just loved them and they've made me feel joyful. And, um, and I've had like, at one point we had three cats and all of my cats were rescues. Um, one of them developed obsessive compulsive disorder and would mow his, the fur off of his stomach. So we got creative about anti-anxiety medications for him. Another cat I had had irritable bowel syndrome and she was like, kicked out by her previous owners because she wasn't litter box trained, but it actually turned out that she had a more serious issue. Um, and then poor boy cat, he ended up at the, um, that was snowball. Uh, he ended up at the, uh, at the humane society because, uh, his family got a dog and he can't stay with dogs. And so I'm like, but this cat was your first pet. And then the dog came around. It feels unfair <laughs> to get rid of the cat. Um, so we had just fostered him for a while, hoping to get him adopted by someone and, you know, kind of find out his personality, give him a break from the shelter. And then when we saw all of the adorable things he did, like dragging his butt on the carpet, eating too fast and throwing up, we were like, no one's going to take this cat. I have, I'm between a rock and a hard place because this cat, I can either omit some of these <laughs> tendencies, right. That are going to potentially drive someone up the wall. Or I can be honest about it. And either way, this cat either gets adopted and then goes right back to the shelter mm. or doesn't get adopted. And he was the biggest cuddle bug ever. Like he really could not take no for an answer. And it was a little bit of a problem, but he wanted to sit on laps. He wanted to be in your face. Um, and he also loved carbohydrates the way I love carbohydrates. He would eat pretty much anything, French fries, popcorn, uh, scones loved scones, cookies, cake, anything. If it was around, he was going to try to take a bite out of it. <laughs> and he like, genuinely, this was the only time this cat moved fast. <laughs> so those were just like, those were my, you know, my little world and my little introduction to being a cat caretaker. Um, and beyond that, I had the opportunity um, a few summers ago, I took over for a community cat caretaker and for People might not know exactly what community cats are, but um, cats that actually live outdoors and live in communities outdoors. Um, and there are 
organizations and volunteers that take care of them that like bring them food and water every day that set up shelters for them so that they can be insulated from weather um, and that help to trap and then spay and neuter the cats so that they don't keep contributing to the overpopulations that we see. And you mentioned about like seeing the stray dogs and how we don't see that as much, but we do see stray cats a lot more often. Um, mm -hmm. And part of that is because people consider them to be hardier and more independent, right? Dogs are right. these animals that need us as much as we need them, but cats can totally make it and they can like, you know, hunt for themselves and get food and they'll get birds, which, you know, topic for another day and like mice and all of these things. And so, so this was another area where we see issues because people won't spay and neuter cats because of the cost. So they will be happy to spend a hundred dollars to spay or neuter a small dog, like teacup chihuahuas, you know, but they will not spend the same amount on the amount of money on a cat. Like in our area locally, it maxes out at about 45 or $50 is what people are willing to do. And beyond that, if you try to charge the actual cost, they just won't do it. They're like, well, we don't need to do this. And you know, the cat gets out or the cat is an indoor outdoor cat. And then they start overpopulating an area with kittens because cats can have kittens as young as six months old. Like they're already ready to reproduce at that point. So it's wow. kittens having kittens, you know? Um, and so this was actually the thing that kind of got me thinking about how do I contribute in a positive way? Mm -hmm. And there's this gap when it comes to um, nonprofits providing spay neuter services and shelters, you know, providing spay neuter services to make pets more adoptable. There's this gap that's being covered sometimes by grants or by federal funding or donations, but there's a gap between what's needed to be paid for this service for cats and what's actually paid for by owners or, um, or other people who, you know, are taking care of those cats. And I was like, this is the place where I can make a difference and take the proceeds that we're making and contribute some of that to these charities to help close that gap in a really sustainable way for, for those animals. And then that cascades down to those cats have a better life because if you have a tomcat and he's spraying all over the place, that cat gets kicked out a lot faster, right? If you have kittens, you know, what's going to happen to those kittens? My first cat was a rescue because she was literally in the bag of kittens headed to the river, literally. <laughs> there was a river behind the farm where we were at and someone was walking by and they were like, would you like one of these kittens? Because they were taking them out to drown them because they couldn't take care of them. And that was what you did. And I think that's a very, that's another, you know, like that's 30-ish years ago that all of this is happening, but that is legitimately how people solve overpopulation problems sometimes is by drowning these animals. And now it feels very unthinkable because we bond so closely with them. And so many people around the world have pets and they couldn't imagine doing that, right? But our, our feelings and our interactions with animals have gone from more utilitarian to more humane and acknowledging them as, you know, as other beings on this planet that also deserve to feel safe and cared for and not to go through a lot of pain and, and torture in their lives. You could maybe argue that our treatment of animals now is very much reflective of our treatment of each other in many ways. Because if you look at like the way the world used to be, I'm not saying it's, you know, still a lot of work, <laughs> but you know, like in general, most countries like we've, we've come farther than I guess we've, we've ever been before. And certainly when it comes to 
the ideals in society and what we regard as the right behavior and stuff you know mm-hmm. we all hold, hold each other to a high standard and may, perhaps you could argue it's 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 reflective of that i mean if it's if this was what was 50 years ago 30 years ago 100 years ago you know you maybe maybe our, our behavior towards each other wasn't quite where it needed to be either i mean that's and that's true again and again and again you know i feel like um everything basically i guess what my point is is everything is connected to some extent and i think treatment of others and animals is very reflective of us and and who we are in many respects um just a couple of questions for you just about cats in general um one thing i wanted to ask you about which i think might be interesting is given that you know both dogs and cats originally obviously come from the wild and they were domesticated by humans and have become very kind of you know closely associated with with humans um almost intertwined why do you think there is this kind of drastic difference in in terms of temperament and attitude between dogs and cats i mean obviously every cat and dog is different but what you said does ring true that dogs do kind of need humans whereas cats they vary like some of them do genuinely need us and they are a bit more needy and sometimes that's behavioral sometimes that's because of abuse or whatever um sometimes it's just their personality but then mm-hmm. you know time and time again especially when i lived in europe i saw it all the time you know you, you could leave the cat to do its thing sometimes the cat wouldn't return for days uh, come back and just be all like friendly and want hugs and stuff and then don't see it for another way it, it was very strange to me because here in england <laughs> like you, you see a bit of that but generally it's like oh, i don't know maybe they go out for a few hours and then they come back spend probably sleep throughout the day hunt at night you know that's kind of the deal um but yeah i just wanted to get your thoughts on on that like this this major difference as far as temperament and personality between dogs and cats and and why it is that we have this perception sure uh i think there are different facets to that one they're different species and they have different strengths and weaknesses right and skill sets um very like cats are much more difficult to train for commands, not impossible, but more difficult. And dogs are much easier (laughs) to train when it comes to giving them commands and having them do certain things and and perform certain behaviors. Like there's a reason why we have guide dogs, but not guide cats, because that cat will 100% leave you for dead. Um, (laughs) and, And I think to an extent, this is also because we have accepted the limitations of cats and we can do that because they're so much smaller, right? Because when you look at some, there are dog species that are bigger than I am, that weigh more than me, that could tear me apart if, you know, if they had like, if they're coming at me. And so their natural inclinations and their size lead us to want to control them more. Whereas cats, like you can, train a sheepdog, right? To herd sheep. And it does a specific activity in a specific way with an animal that responds. How do you train a cat to hunt mice in a specific way? Like you don't even know necessarily where those mice are. And so they have more independence and we trust them to like do their particular tasks and things on their own. And we've just kind of done that. Whereas with dogs, we can have more control. Therefore we do have more control. We want more control because they can do more harm to us 
individually and, you know, and, and as a whole, right? You're usually walking down a dark alley, you see a pack of dogs. How are you going to feel compared to seeing a bunch of cats together, right? Like, oh, look at the cute kitties, right? And they're probably more likely to scatter. Whereas those dogs could be aggressive. You don't know. And they might be just fine, but we're going to tend to ascribe more aggression towards dogs than towards cats because also size-wise, they can be bigger, way much bigger than cats. Now, if you think about it, like if we had tigers that we were keeping as pets, you'd probably be training more and holding them on a tighter leash than we do the average house cat because we just don't perceive them as a danger. Um, I don't know to what extent we could do more in terms of bringing those species together uh, in terms of how we interact with them and like shaping their environments, shaping the way that they interact with us. And that would be a very curious, like hundred year project, right. Or more to see if you could, if you could bring them closer together in terms of the ways that they behave and the way that they are trainable. Um, but those are some of the larger things that I find mm. are very different between the two species. And we're really more willing to let cats like do their own thing. And to an extent, we'll tolerate more shenanigans from cats than we will from dogs. Like if your dog is not housebroken, that's a real serious problem. But like your cat peeing outside the litter box, you're like, oh no, what have I done wrong? <laughs> not what have you done wrong as a cat, but like I have clearly not set up the perfect environment for this animal. Otherwise it wouldn't do this, right? Whereas a dog is a bad dog if he pooped on the floor or, you know, peed in a corner. It's very true. Because I've always seen dogs as being kind of like it varies but generally they're, they're like perpetually a toddler <laughs> you know like kind of whereas cats always kind of uh and and don't get me wrong i think there's certain breeds of dogs and certain personalities can like once you get to a certain amount of years they, they do become very mature and intelligent and they just they don't even have to be told whereas mm -hmm. cats just kind of seem very mature from the get-go like and i've always found that fascinating how different their personality is to dogs like they just are, i mean I, as you said i think a lot of it does come down to just different being different species having different temperaments but mm -hmm. maybe some of it is to do with the way we treat them as well and um our perception of them well um, and different rhythms too right because like cats tend to be more like dawn and dusk oriented hunters right. and spend a lot of their time sleeping during the day and overnight um, whereas dogs tend to be more like, what's my human doing? Are they awake? Like, let's go. And <laughs> um, yeah, and have those and have far more difference in their energy levels, yeah. like as adults, as adult animals, like you can have a very active dog, but most cats are not going to be nearly as active as, as a dog. Absolutely. Uh, how can someone become an effective cat whisperer? What's the secret? <laughs> Oh, goodness. Um, I think it's lowering your expectations of what a cat is going to do um, and knowing what cats, you know, kind of like who they are, right? Accepting them as they are and figuring out what works for any individual cat or doesn't. I know that as someone who has worked on training my cats not to jump on things, like one of them just didn't care. She needed to be, she was straight up vertical and back down um, and loved it. And my bigger cat had a harder time jumping on stuff. So we never really had to worry too much about it, but kind of understanding what your cat's interests are 
and what their triggers are and what scares them or what they don't like because mm. the most effective training tool we ever used was a spray bottle just filled with clean water and just a little spritz in the face anytime that they tried to do something that was like unacceptable. Um, and they did not care for that at all. And they quickly learned like, if I try to do X, Y will happen. I don't want that to happen. So I will stay down here. And sometimes it was effective enough that you could just shake the water bottle and they would slink away from whatever mischief they were trying to commit. <laughs> but a part of it is also understanding their personalities and being willing to give them what they need, right? If they like to jump, if they like to climb, if they like to scratch, they need to have outlets for that because punishing them for these natural behaviors is not going to be helpful. It's not going to really discourage those behaviors and it can cause both trauma and depression and anxiety in the cat if they're not able to engage in these things that their bodies need. And, you know, it's the same way, like when people with small children, like if they don't get enough sleep, they are tiny monsters. Um, and so you really have to like, it's not about what you need your child to be able to do with staying up late or getting up early. It's about the amount of time they need to be resting and you have to adjust to that. And it's the same with cats. You have to really adjust to the animal and understand them and figure out like what motivates them and what doesn't and then use those tools and then just baby proof your home and not have candles or plants anywhere because both are a recipe for disaster these are health conditions that you mentioned um that are quite common in obviously in humans it would sound like a stupid question but i i do i genuinely don't know it's just fascinating to me i've heard of cats having like being ang anxious having anxiety but i always just attributed that to like okay poor owners but i remember once um when I was growing up, I, I um, one of my mum's best friend's partners had a couple of cats. And it was fascinating to me because the two cats were completely different. Um, one of them was petrified of humans and the other one was chill. And they explained, and I was only a kid at the time, I was like five or six, but, uh, and I used to get a bit like upset that like the, the cat, one of the cats was petrified. And it was explained to me that the reason that the cat was petrified was that it had been treated really badly. So it would just run and hide. Like even when it came to food time, the chill cat would, you know, just come and do its thing, whatever. <laughs> uh, like I'm your boss, you know, typical cat. Mm -hmm. And the other cat would kind of wait until it got dark and no one's around and then kind of go get the food. Um, there was one time we had to try and get it out of a garage. It'd run away. It was scared of something. And it took like hours to get the car because um, it was so scared. And I remembered because years earlier like the one and only cat i'd ever owned it was explained to me i was like two or three years old and um we were given this cat because the neighbors didn't want it and we just moved into this place it was just me and my mom mm -hmm. and um it was explained that the cat didn't like children <laughs> which obviously is going to be a problem <laughs> and it, it wouldn't come anywhere near me obviously uh, and apparently that was because the kids in the local area had been mean to it or whatever. So it's mm -hmm. just like, I hate children. Um, and my mum just carefully explained, look, I we will get the cat to like you, but it's going to take some time. You have to build up trust. So here's what we're going to do. And we would just basically put food out for the cat, you know, and basically I, I was like, 
you know, the boss, essentially, I mm-hmm. would give I would give the food right every time. And at first I noticed that the cat would kind of skulk in and, and I guess initially associate that I was there. And it, at first it used to pest my mum, but I think after a while it realised, no, he's the food giver, go, go to him. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't like little humans, but he gives me food, so he must be all right. And then the magic happened. It took about a month or so, but I was just sitting in our living room and then the cat sort of wanders up near me and sees what's going on and we become friends and then we become best buddies. Then it's like, cat loves me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, I've never told this story before. Yeah, the cat's name was Rocky. So, yeah, I didn't, I didn't name it that, but was, imagine a three-year-old um, in his room waking up in the morning this is how I began my mornings I'd wake up in the morning and I had a stair gate because I was a young kid and the, the cat would run up the stairs and jump over so what I would I'd wake up I'd be like Rocky and the cat would just run up the stairs jump over the stair gate jump on my <laughs> and I would just stroke the cat until my mum woke up and that was it that is the cutest thing I've ever heard thank you for sharing <laughs> that with me I adore that it sounds like that cat was really important to you Oh my god, I love that cat so much. I love animals. I've always loved animals. I think and without sounding like douchey, like, oh animals love me. But you know what it is? I think it comes down to temperament as well. Like you have to understand the way animals are and they and what you said earlier in the conversation about the vibe you give off, the temperament you give off. Like animals are very sensitive. They can pick up on that stuff. Dogs and cats both know if um they have fantastic memories you know like i remember this is a bit of a sad story i remember there was a family dog we had who unfortunately had been abused um i think like the british version of the carnival um and we'd had the dog for like 20 years you know so this was like 15 years in or something and dog was brilliant obviously it's a rescue very well behaved but as soon, the minute that it saw someone like across the road that even looked even a little bit scraggly, like they could be from the, the circus carnival, it would lose its mind. It would just go, and just go really aggressive. Um, because obviously that's how dogs react to fear and to um, memories of trauma and stuff like that. They get scared, they attack. That's, that's how they, and people, that's the thing, people that don't understand that, they might look at that and go, oh, it's an aggressive dog. And it's like, no, it's mm-hmm. not. Like, I don't think they, whenever I see an aggressive dog, the first thing I think is that's a bad owner. Mm-hmm. Every mm-hmm. time. Same with, same uh, with cats. Same with unpopu- cats. Unpopular opinion, a child that gets bitten was asking for it. An adult that gets bitten was asking for it. It's not, and it's not necessarily that they were intentionally trying to do something mean to an animal, but they didn't take the appropriate steps to find out what triggers that animal, whether that animal is friendly to other people, whether it's okay to pet. And this is one of the things I have a five-year-old. The thing we always teach him is always ask the owner, is it okay to pet? And always approach the animal by offering your hand for them to smell before you go in to touch them. Cause like, think about it. And also as, as the parent of a small child, I get hands coming at my face all the time. It is unpleasant. Right. And so now like from an animal's perspective, like from an adult perspective, I can kind of, I can process that. But from an animal's perspective where like, here's my dog, here's my child. 
they're very in your face. And those children are so close. And I think this is what scares cats a lot about small children. They're unpredictable. They move fast and they're very, very close to low to the ground. And so it makes them feel like more of a danger compared to adults who tend to move slower if they get off the sofa at all, um, you know, who tend to understand and give animals their space. But the children, they're like, I want this and therefore I'm going to go do it versus the adult who's like, well, this cat, what this cat needs and how it behaves and reacts is also important to consider. So I'm not going to go after this cat. But kids, they're whole world is about them, right? Mm. They don't, they haven't like started really looking at like, it's not just about me. It's about the people in my family. It's about my community. It's not just about me and what I want or need in this moment. It's about a greater collective and they're just not capable of that thought yet. And so they tend to be very aggressive and go after the animals and have to be trained on how not to do that. So I can see how that's problematic. But yeah, but if you just approach a strange animal that you don't know anything about their history, about their temperament, you know, anything like that, and you just come at them, I can't blame that animal for trying to defend and protect itself because we as humans need to have a different approach of saying, you know, is your dog okay to pet, you know, and like, is there anything I need to know about your dog? And then make that introduction slowly. I think Something that rings true that you said and also that I've heard before, particularly with cats, is this idea that, you know, dogs and cats, pets are an exercise in consent. And it's an important lesson that you can teach your children by having a pet. And, and that's the thing, like when you hear of these extreme scenarios where like a kid gets attacked by an animal or whatever, and, and you know, it's always the same thing. You know, the dog gets put down or something like that. And it's like, I always look at that like, okay, I, I look at it like double-sided. Part of it, I see, okay, you know what? I think if you know you've got a dog that's got like trauma, you know that they've, you know, tricky temperament, something like that, just keep them away from young children, you know, yes. like above a certain age, you know, like that. And again, it comes down to the owner. It always comes down to the owner. But when it comes to, as you say, like the other side, which is uh, teaching your children how to react to it. I mean, especially with dogs, like cats are a bit, cats are a bit funny, you know, like, as you said, they're a bit more erratic. Like the most they'll do is scratch you, but then they just run away. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and it's, there's, there's not really much you can say other than oh, explain to your kid, like, okay, this is why the cat does this. You don't need to be afraid. Mm -hmm. I mean, it happens. I'm sure all of us have had that thing where you're stroking the cat touch its belly and it just scratches the hell out of you and then yeah and then it go yeah and you're like what and it but they just don't like that but you mm -hmm. learn that for experience mm -hmm. whereas um but here's the thing every cat's different sometimes you'll do that you stroke their belly for ages and they love it so but uh, exercise and consent and mm -hmm. you know um but what you said specifically about putting your hand out and offering it and you know i i do that every single time with dogs and cats and it's it's like a trust exercise mm -hmm. you know and some sometimes like um i had this a lot with cats where they're like sometimes with dogs too where they'll sniff your hand and then they'll just kind of decide mm, i'm gonna walk away, walk away. okay you know yeah that's yeah. it they they came they heard your question and they gave you a clear no <laughs> 
And if they decide to, they can change their mind and come back and give you a yes or ask you if you are interested in playing this game. So yeah, absolutely. And I think like, I think this is another way that we're seeing in terms of compassion for animals and that consent and having humane living conditions and all of these things. I think part of this is, you know, when we think about like these changes being made and really any sort of what I consider more high level change in society, right? That's not just purely about survival is when we get to a point where as a world or as a society or a country, we can have the time to expend on things that go beyond just surviving and taking care of ourselves, then we can expand into, you know, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be humane towards animals and compassionate towards them and each other? And what is the world that we want to live in as opposed to, this is the world I live in and I have to react constantly to keep myself safe. Once we feel safe, we can expand into these bigger questions of what it means to, to live and to live a good life in this world and how to treat others pets and animals included. And I think we've gotten there compared to 100 years ago, 200 years ago. We've solved a lot of problems in terms of disease, right? Of course, we've created plenty of new problems as well. But between having so much more access to communication and connection around the world, like I communicate with people from all continents, all countries, because I'm part of these international groups on Facebook. Right. And I have all of this access to resources and to see, even if there's not a community or a culture represented in my home, that I can see what this is like and like learn more and make these connections and see these patterns around the world. But I can do that because I have both the time and the calm energy to engage in this because I don't have to work three jobs to support my family because no one in my family, luckily knock on wood, um, has any sort of severe illness, right. That we are, that's consuming our time and our energy. So, you know, it's easy to say like, Oh, be compassionate and do this and do that. But our individual, um, experiences in life and what we're dealing with and going through inform so much of that. And I can't begrudge someone who has a sick child or a sick partner or a sick parent for not thinking about recycling, right? When they have something so big happening to them. But overall, I think humanity is kind of entering a golden age of this, where we have the ability to quickly solve problems, to quickly connect with each other, and to think beyond just this is what I'm doing to survive, to do more planning of like, what does sustainability mean in terms of how we live our lives and how corporations are set up and how companies do things, right? It's not just about like, what's the short-term benefit and gain here, but how can we make this last for a really long time in a way that is balanced and mm. that doesn't create more harm in the world? And whether that's in terms of pollution or just corporate practices, um, the cultures within workplaces and having some of that awareness of first, like social and emotional development is key and understanding how we feel helps us understand how others feel. I think it's really hard to be empathetic if you can't also be in tune with your own emotions and whether those are hard emotions like anger and envy and frustration and sadness or more positive emotions of, you know, happiness and joy and love and all of these things, but you have to, and you have to take the good and the bad. Um, and I think this is where we are right now, where we can do more of those things. More and more of us can, 
Um, but we also have to be careful then not to raise the standards so high that we look down on people who are in a season of their life where they cannot do those things. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing. Um, would love to get a couple more questions in before we uh, finish, uh, just standard questions that I ask every guest. What's the best advice you've ever received? Oh my gosh. This was actually super recent for me and it felt revolutionary. And the advice was don't tell yourself no, let the other person tell you no, if they're going to. So don't not ask a question because you expect it's going to be a no. Ask the question. And if they are going to say no, they can do that. But don't stand in your own way by never Mm. asking for something that you need or want to begin with. And I feel like that gave me permission to really free myself up to just go after something and say like, you know, I want this thing or I'm curious about X and the other person can absolutely say no. And I can be okay with that. But I also sleep easier at night knowing I didn't miss the opportunity, right? I didn't stand in my own way. So don't tell yourself no, let the other person tell you no if they're going to. Brilliant advice. What's the biggest life lesson you've learned so far? Oh my goodness. Um, I think the biggest life lesson is that for all the times that I feel like, you know, I need to give grace to other people. I need to remember just how much grace I receive in my own life. Uh, and that it's not this like snobby thing that I'm doing because I am better than you to give you grace when you make a mistake or something happens that, you know, that harms me, but that it's really about reflecting on the fact that so many other people have done this for me that Mm -hmm. I'm not even necessarily aware of, you know, in those moments that, um, that I have been giving grace and that I should really put more of that out into the world myself and let things go and, have more calm conversations um, and give people the grace and the flexibility and understanding that I want because I know my intentions are good and I think most people have good intentions and coming at them in aggressive ways isn't helpful. So really putting out more grace in the world because knowing that there's lots of times that people show me grace as well. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And as uh, we draw things to a close for today, do you have any upcoming projects or some final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? So I am super, super excited about a project that I'm working on right now, because again, supporting animal charities and nonprofits is very close to my heart. And knowing that this is such a big need, not just here, but all around the world, um, we are launching a fundraising initiative where animal organizations um, that feel connected to our brand um, can take advantage of bulk pricing to use quantums as a fundraising tool so that they can have like a really clear cut shelf stable product that takes a tiny, tiny footprint that can be buzzworthy in terms of the name or like white labeled for their needs with their or co-branded with their organization's information to help both raise funds for them, raise awareness of declawing practices and sustainable alternatives to declawing, and also support their mission of uh, having animals and pets taken care of and with dignity, respect, and sustainability in mind. So that is one of the biggest things that I'm working on right now, and I'm really excited for that. Excellent. Well, best of luck with that and everything that you're, uh, you're doing in your life. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and getting to know you and sharing your story. And uh, yeah, just a massive thank you for everything. 
Thank you. It's been an honor and a treat to get to know more about you as well. And um, I'm really grateful for you for sharing this time with me. Thank you. Pleasure's mine as always. And to all the listeners of the Christian Reef podcast, as always, be safe, be well, and I'll see you in the next one.